Yeah, perfect. <laughs> oh, you're in the same shirt too, eh? It's like you never left. I made sure that I know how to do these these kind of things, you know. It's the same day. I used to have to do this with the press. You had me thinking of old stories yesterday, but sometimes we'd be somewhere doing an interview and it'd be whatever, but I had to run and we get it. And they couldn't cause they had, it. I'd have to come back today and I made sure my hair was the same, the suit. And yeah. How you been though? You had a good day? Yeah, I've had a really good day today, you know, and um, that's reflected a lot of what we, we talked about uh, yesterday and, and, and put it to practice. I, could, I just found out somebody I know, lost their um you know our partner they don't you know they've been dating uh for about six months but you know you know in their late 40s early 50s and person died on the weekend of a uh, atv accident and uh yeah they, you know so they're you know dealing with that and they had to stay there on site for an hour watching whatever that looked like which I, you know i know what that was like right so mm-hmm. you know that person is going to need some serious help right and, and uh it got me reflected on the the I was talking about crying and stuff, and it really made me think about how was I able to not show tears because the emotion was still there. And then how was it going from not being able to feel my feelings, wanting to, but unable to knowing I need to or I'll die, basically, right? Okay. So going to that, and then the point where you go too far, clearly you can't walk around, and every time I say something hurtful, unintentionally or intentionally, if you cry, that's not right either, right? And it's... It's how do you how do you find that balance? Well, you know, I got thinking about that like today because I let my I, I let it just happen organically. Cry on the thing yesterday, right? And I can I could have chose not to do that, so it made me reflect on why. And it, again, it comes back to my if I want to cover from addiction addiction or recover from the trauma, I actually need to do what my body's telling me not to do because it learned how to do things improperly. So I can't trust my natural instincts. So for me, the risk of putting up walls to not cry, which is appropriate. You can't cry every time. You can't always cry in public. You can't cry in a business meeting. I mean, you shouldn't, right? Right. But for me, for me, the risk of me heading back to that other place where walls come up, that's what it's like. Wall, 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 bank can't feel anything. And it's a rapid succession, right? And you're numb. And for me, I can feel the, I know I have the ability to snap up wall, snap up a fall and just kind of get composed quickly. The risk of doing that and then my automatic system takes over again, which is the wrong one, yeah. is too high for me. It's better for me to run the risk. Well, this might look a little unusual or people might think I'm too sensitive or you know, maybe people think I'm sadder than I am. Um, that's okay. That, the price I'd have to pay to, to have those walls come up automatically all the time right? Because that's my natural teenage young adult. It's too great. That's why I go that way. Now, that's why I fight the resistance to not have every feeling to have its full impact immediately. That's a personal choice. I didn't really make that clear to you. That's just just something for you as you you battle some of your stuff. And that's what they are. They're battles, right? Seven to three, you still won the game, right? And so you got to come up with ways of knowing that this tricky brain you're using your dysfunctional brain to solve your problem. And that's why you have to have a we program. We, whether it's God or we, whether it's me or someone else or whatever. It allows or even what we're doing today, this, exactly. Definitely, definitely. And, and for me, 
I've got some guys and I do this once every two weeks, maximum once a month, a group of eight guys. And that's something if you can, if you don't have it, that's something for you to develop. And I never started that till I was 48. I've changed all my friends. We didn't get to that yesterday. I don't have any of the friends that I used to have as an investment banker, basically. Close. The ones that were average friends, they're still average friends. But the guys that I thought were close, they're all gone because they weren't close. And they weren't real. And they're gone. And I don't need to see them and I don't want to see them. And and what were they like? Friends. What were they like at the time, and what made you think they were your friends? And then, how did you yeah. realize? Well, dude, this going. So, for for me, and I, it's my fault too, because if I if I didn't know myself, how can I expect somebody else to know me? Mm-hmm. If I don't really understand myself, which I clearly didn't, and I do now, like I am super super aware. Psychologists are amazed at how much I know how all this body soul stuff works. Right. Okay. And I, and I can do it on a dime, right? If I didn't know any of that, then I wasn't aware of myself and I couldn't understand myself yet. We all, oh, I want to be understood. Oh, she doesn't understand me. You're all there, whatever. That's a crock. So, but that was me. And, and if I was pretending to the world, which I thought was smart, that was one of my talents, by the way. I was a chameleon, which I thought was a good thing. I could be anything to anybody and it allowed me to have a diverse group of clients first group of friends and I could fit in not because I was a phony I just it's like it's kind of like I don't have one car that I like or one color that I like or one song genre that I like I'm lucky that way well I have different types of personalities it's a different interest from, from rock concerts to the ballet okay and uh in any event so for me the friends I was picking were the ones that like to have fun and that meant more fun, which meant more, more going out. And then, um, you know, people, and, and since I didn't really want to talk about anything like this, my friends were the same way. So, you know, typically what you had is that since work was the most important, they were people associated with work. They were either people that could give me work or people that I hired to work for me. So like lawyers, investment bankers, athletes, cause I played sports. But then there'd be guys that were, you know, they were the high adrenaline guys, you know, aggressive guys, competitive guys, you know, and I'm looking for people that have the same opinion because I, I want to have us all be like-minded because that's, you know, so I was very narrow-minded and closed-minded, so we were all kind of like, and then, you know, our topics all revolved around the same kind of stuff, you know, work first, who's an idiot, talk about everybody else, talk about women, you know, and, and on all our work accomplishments and sports accomplishments, right, and and a lot of socializing. So, you know, I drank, but I didn't drink a lot, but I was in drinking settings or work settings. And, and, the, and you know, the, the people that, that were there, as much as they were always there, hey, what are you up to? Or they're always inviting me out or whatever. I was just their wingman or they were just my wingman. And we, we used each other without knowing it. But as I started growing and becoming aware and wanted more of, I call it the real stuff and less of the other, like not zero to a hundred, you know, they didn't. And I could see that my friends were phony. They weren't really there when I needed them. And, you know, as one example, when I went to rehab and came out, my best, best friend knew what I was going through. He knew I didn't want to drink. He, he knew then I got to watch what places I go. I got to watch what things I do. I can't associate with any of a certain type of person. Like I explained that and they know that. And I don't want anybody to stop what they do. And I want them to drink their beers and we can still go. But I had these guys, some of these guys, we'd be out and I go 11 o'clock guys, I'm going home. 
And I'd be visiting them and staying at their house in their city. And, and they're not. They'd stay out. And at two in the morning, we're in biker bars. Well, you know what goes on in biker bars. Yep. And these are lawyer friends of mine, friends. They're putting me in dangerous situations where I'd have to leave and go stay in a hotel because I, I don't want to be exposed to that, right? And anyway, that, that's just one example. And, and they're all still the same. And it's not like I didn't get divorced, but they've all gotten divorced and they're all still very self-centered and they, they, all, they still use the bottle too much. That's my opinion. It's, a self, it's self-righteous on that. But, the but ego, right? Friends. The ego. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know and I, I don't know a lot about you, Zach, but like when I'm watching what you're doing, we, we all have to try to have a living. We all have to have a, a pursuit of something that gives us a feeling of passion. Um, we have to meet our financial needs and, 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 and money is a bit of a scorecard, but it can all get out of balance. And that's where I was. And then you can still be successful like you and you can, you can start to try to look at what else can I do with my life? Why well, you don't give up your capitalist mentality. I don't, I don't believe in Marxism. I'm a no, capitalist. Of course not. Yeah. So you can still do that, but you can try to do it in a way that I'm going to go, in my in my career, I could have done things differently where I would have felt better about myself, right? And and that's where I see you now at a much younger age than me. And by the time I figured out, I'm like, you know what? For my kids, I'm also going to quit work. So there's a whole bunch of stuff going on. I already had a good run. But if I had found out what I did at 35, I would have had a much happier career ending for the next 10 or 15 years I probably wouldn't have made as much money. I would have still been as famous. Mm-hmm. I would have felt better about myself. The stuff I was doing to, to, to win was actually having a detrimental effect on my feeling good about myself. And I didn't know that. And most people don't. Because when you're self-centered and you're not trusting the world and you think everybody's bad, you don't really understand the impact that you're having on other people, negative impact. Does that make sense? hundred percent. And you're probably much more aware of that now. So then you tend to act maybe 10% different, softer, gentler, empathetic. I was zero in those areas. And so were my friends. So when we think we're all there, we're all loyal. Well, nah, nah, they're wasn't. there to use me for my money. They're there to use me to get me to hire them. They're there because Tom was just a fucking fun guy. And they're there because they need to tell their wife they're out with someone. It's that obvious to me now, but it wasn't then. But I mean, if the bars at restaurants are open now, if you went to any restaurant, I own two of them, you just watch who sits at the bar every night or stands in and socializes. You'll see the same women and men, successful, whatever, whatever. And after a while, you'll realize they're really lonely. And then they have the same group of friends and they all have the same things. And what they don't know is they have the same stuff of us they're running from. And they're using that. Not that it's killing them yet, but it means they really haven't lived life to its max. You know, when that person, when I heard about that person today, lost it. Like I knew what that person felt like. The, and when the I saw them, they welcomed. Yeah, that is heartbreaking. The pain I know they're gonna have to go through. When I reached out, they were happy. Like I'm not, not that took away their pain. And then I got a nice long message later, and they, they from like I've got them on the right track now because I said, trust me, write this down. You're gonna need to do A, B, C, and D eventually. But that was enough to let them, it's kind of like having food in your cupboard and they say you might be locked up for two days. There's a security to that. For me, it's books, by the way. If I've got books on that shelf that I haven't read on self-awareness or 
getting over child abuse or emotional, whatever it is, because I got stuff that I haven't read. That's, that's my food shelf. That's what I use for my security blanket, believe it or not. So for other people, is there always books no, for you? Or? No, this is where I had to change. Is um, I hated reading. I didn't read as a kid. Yeah. And uh, I didn't know why. I now know why. And uh, but when I got into business, it's one of the things they did do to differentiate. I read very select things, but I have some brain impairment that you know, again, that's caused that was caused by my environment. So my ability to remember certain certain things is like the lowest seven percent. Which, if that's all we focused on in life, I'd look like a, a person that's mentally of course, uh, but that's not what we focus on, luckily. But uh, um, and 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 so because of that, I didn't like to read. I can't read something and retain it right away. It takes a while. So it takes a while. And so, but I've learned techniques the same way as I was ADHD for sure. But it's never diagnosed. But I've learned ways that that doesn't affect me. I've got little things that I do that are kind of obsessive compulsive, but they take that away. And part of it's that memory thing. And I have super memory on one end. And it comes from being alert and being ready. My brain learned what was relevant and what wasn't relevant to staying alive. And guess what wasn't relevant? Your name. I can't remember a name and I've never been able to. And trust me, it makes it socially awkward. But this is where I'm reading about the Vegas stem. If your brain needs to make sure you're not attacked, caught off guard, like a chaotic family home environment, mm-hmm. if that's the main goal and it keeps pushing down other needs, like remembering somebody's names, a social skill, guess what my brain was doing without me knowing it? And it beca- it's, the t- it's the wiring in, in the brains that change, mind over, emphasize and belt over here, and it shut others off from growing. That's the theory. And I think that's probably why I can remember some things really well and some things not at all. Is it day-to-day tasks at times or mundane tasks? I've been making lists since I was 16 years old. I've got lists for everything. I've got Tom, you know, lists, lists right here. Well, look, I, I write everything down and I highlight it. And yep. Yeah, that's how I read now. And I'm okay with that. So I know the first time I read the read a book, the first chapter, no pressure, just read it. Okay. Now I'm going to read it again and put marks on the outside um, uh, columns of what's important on that page, if anything. Then I read it the third time and I underline the phrases. Now, trust me, I'm going to nail that exam, but I don't go to the next chapter till I've done that. So reading for fun is hard, and that's the way you have to read. Now, if we're talking, and it's a, this word with videos, YouTubes, yeah. I remember fucking everything, especially facial expressions. Okay, and that's why I, I, I that's why I like uh, you know texting. I've never liked because I can't read what's really going on. Context. Phone calls are better. This is better, and then in person's the best for me. Of course. Because I feel safer. When you feel safer, you can retain things. Is it hard for you to feel safe during texting or emailing? Is it because you can't read that person's emotion? It. it so. Hey, Tom, quickly before we get started, um, yeah. yesterday, should I remove it or leave it in there, some of it? It's, it, it, it's, it's up to you. I, yeah, I don't okay. care about that. Yeah, as yeah, long as you don't you. care. Yeah. No, I, I don't care. That was just one of the more open ones where I really worry about what I say about my parents or my dad because I love them. And my dad just passed too, right? Yeah, because so, I, I didn't know that because you were just you were just talking about him not long ago and now he's gone. Yeah. 
How long ago was this? Last year, right? Died in August. Yeah. Yeah. Died in August. He died of COVID, I say, because he, not that he caught the disease, is that a man his age, he, with, with his, with his, with the way that he didn't deal with things, which he felt was appropriate, the way he compartmentalized things, the way that he didn't like to talk about my kids anymore. And, and he, he, he would cry on his own, but he wouldn't show it. He was uncomfortable with us. You know, that's just, that's how my dad dealt with stuff, like a lot of men in that. So you got a guy that can't deal with emotions. And so, you know, loneliness isn't something that they're really good, good with when they get older. They don't know how to reach out and share. And, they, and if, you, if, you're, if, you, if your friends are dying, you're not making new ones because it's not something you believed in, right? Nope. And um, but with an old at an older age, my dad when COVID hit, he has his own fears and in, as, to begin with. But when COVID hit, they really got amplified, and then some of his friends were more anxious than him, right? So they're scared. They're not going out. Nobody's visiting them. He's afraid of us to visit, and months and months and months of that. And then he got sick, and then he went to the hospital. And again, mental health talks about our need for connection. Well, when you're in a hospital, it's bad enough. You're, you're in there, it's sterile, everybody's in uniforms. Be in a hospital and there's nobody else there. Be in a hospital and you can only have one visitor a day. And you're not a guy that's dealt with his emotions and you've just been traumatized like everyone else during COVID. Well, he couldn't stand it. He didn't think he was going to get better. So eventually he said, I want out of here. I want you to let me die. And he took advantage of Canadian's law to allow self-suicide. Uh, medical assistance in dying. Yeah, well, I, you know, I challenged that because the original term was medical assistance and suicide, but we've now made it now a socially acceptable term. And I'm going to go suicide because that's what it felt like me for me watching my dad die for 10 days. I did not enjoy it. I didn't agree with it. Were you there when he passed away? Uh, you know, I'll, I'll tell you what I did. I, I, I wouldn't tell anybody else. I'm watching the family dynamics and, you know, it's, it's a tough time. And it's bad enough when you hear someone's going to die, but when you actually have them decide, and now you got to go 10 days left, nine days left. We must have did eight last dinners. Okay, oh, we're doing another last dinner. And, uh, and of course, he's getting healthier at home, and he's getting happier at home. And, you know, he's drinking a couple of drinks and eating a steak, and the next night it's pizza, Chinese food. But now he's only got three days left, and I'm going, I know he doesn't have a year or two in him, but he's got a month. He could do his own funeral. Let's have speeches, and he's there. But nope, nope, we're going to do it. Tunnel vision, bang, it's going to be this way. And I'm watching it, and uh, I decided I don't need to share what I'm going to do. I think I know what I'm going to do based on my feelings and what's good for me and my emotional health. But I don't have to decide today. And as we got closer in that morning, I knew what I was going to do. And I knew I wasn't going to tell anybody except my fiance. And I knew I was only going to give her 15 minutes notice of what I was going to do. And then she's free to do what she wants. And as the doctors are all in there and he's laying in his bedroom, I said to my fiance, I said, I'm walking in with everybody. I'm standing closest to the door. I'll be close to the bed. I'm, I'm not staying. And just before they go to do the injection, I'm going to halt the process. And I'm going to tell dad that I love you. I'm not going to watch you die. It doesn't mean I don't love you as much as any as the other people here, but I'm just not doing it. I don't want to see it. I respect that you want to leave now. I know you don't believe in God, but I hope you join my boys. And I'm really glad I had you as my dad. I turned around, I walked up, I got on my bike like I always do, and I just rode and rode and rode. 
And I knew eventually he must be dead by now, but I don't know exactly when he died. I didn't see that look in his face, which I've seen before with people. And, um, you know, I was at peace. What did he my say? Was, was he in a coma at this time or was he talking? Oh, gosh, no, no. By the time he got home from the hospital, he was weak. You know, they thought he was going to need to be on oxygen and a walker. And, you know, his organs weren't working right and his heart wasn't working right. And, you know, they thought he might have three, four months. They didn't think they could turn him around anyway, completely, but maybe another year. But he wasn't going to wait. So when he got home, he was weak. And, you know, they gave him, they said, we'll be over to visit you and we'll set it up. And they did that within four days. And by then he's already a little stronger. But, you know, he once he starts eating meals, which he refused to do in the hospital, once he started walking around with his walker, which he refused to do in the hospital, once he had people around him, which he had none in the hospital, he came back to life to some degree. Not quality like two years ago, but he, you know, he, he probably had another good quality month in him, but he was sticky. He had, the, you have the right to change that. So like the doctors kept coming back every three or four days to check on him and to say, are you sure? And he'd go, yes. And other people around wouldn't, wouldn't say anything. I go, dad, are you really sure? Like we can, we can push this off another week. You know, we can push this off another couple of weeks. You, you know, you could do your own funeral. You know, I'm an outside of the box thinker. Instead of having people come over now to say goodbye or say, I didn't like the way they came over and started making that they have this pre-script they do. Like, who are you? Who are you? Do you mm -hmm. I'm sitting there like, guys. Last like thing you need right now. Yeah, last thing you need, right? I didn't like any any of the process. I I didn't I didn't I didn't like the fact that in the hospital that they didn't realize that he was depressed. I think my dad was depressed. And in depression, you don't make smart decisions, right? Mm -hmm. This has given up a bit, right? Yeah. Right. Well, the, the, the forms say that, that they won't let you do a medically assisted death or suicide you unless it. you're of Alzheimer's. So they never asked me. I would have said, my dad's depressed. He's been locked up for five months. He hasn't left his backyard. His girlfriend didn't visit him for two months. My dad, it doesn't handle lonely well. So my dad, as far as I'm walking, well, he's clinically depressed. So do you think but nobody asked looking back now, do you think the choice was like, are you pissed off with the decision that was made? Um, or have you come to peace with it in some bizarre way? In my recovery world, I've learned there is no upside to even asking myself those questions or, or answering them from others. But I'm going to, you know, in this case, it's a matter of, you know, this is for trying to help people. So I don't look back. I don't want to look back. I was angry and, 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 and angry for a long time about a lot of things. And I've had to come to grips with that. And that's my issue. Um, you know, he's gone. And um, I know that if I, when it comes to, I got to look at it for, for, for what, what I've done is I, I've recently used it to help me improve my recovery from what I call my spikes of PTSD or potential slides into depression, which risks me on my addiction side. So what I've done is, how can I be mad at my dad for not trying to maximize the last month of his life if I'm sitting around here moping and complaining every time the government comes out with a stupid rule? How do I be mad at my dad about not sharing with his friends why I'm sitting here and I'm not calling my friends back in Kelowna because I'm too depressed or too sad or life doesn't feel worth it today? I am acting like my dad. So I've used that to go, you know what? I need to step up. 
I need to go. This is the last day of my life. As bad as it is with a mask on. And, you know, today they said double mask. So guess I what? I that. That was funny. On. See my Facebook post? Good. <laughs> that's what. I, that's Tom Bud. I need to be that Tom Bud with the four face masks, making fun, making a point, and then going, you know what? I'm going out for a bike ride. And my dad gave up. My dad gave up because he didn't deal with his mental health challenges during his adult life because he didn't know how, he didn't have the tools, and didn't have the support. He wasn't me. Tom, was it a different and, era? Is that what it was? There was no one op- talking about this openly at that time? That's what you commonly hear now. And the, and the answer is yes, that's the way it was. And it's an easy out. Yeah, but, yeah, but. There's no room for yeah, buts if you want to have growth. So that is the way it was. And it was everybody. And it was like that for a couple of decades. But when I take, when I, when I talk to men between 70 and 90 now, a percent of them, maybe 20% are as evolved as, as, as me and you. Cause they broke out of that mold themselves. And there's people that go to counseling that are 60, 65, or 70 now. And, you know, my dad refused to and didn't like it because that, 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 that you can't, tr- when you had his childhood, you don't trust people. Like when your dad physically abuses you on a regular basis, how are you going to really trust anybody? Right? So, and, and then, so if you've been like that your whole life and it seems to have worked, then why are you going to change? And again, if, Feeling an emotion is painful. See, my dad didn't like me crying and he didn't let me cry. And I can be angry about that, except I saw myself do it with my kids when they were young, except I was already starting to do some work. And I realized it's not that I don't like them crying. It made me feel like a failure. It made me feel like I'm a shitty dad because my kid's crying and I don't know what to do, which means I'm a failure. And if they're crying, they're sad and sad's a bad feeling. My kids are feeling bad. Like I can't fix them. So I need them to stop because if they stop, I feel better about myself. Luckily, by the time my kids were six or seven, I figured that out. And now crying's good. And we talked about emotions. So I didn't do that to them, but I, I probably did a little, little, but my dad would never have gotten over that. And then, if you look at the pain and work that you have to do sometimes, Zach, get to where you are, we know it's worth it. They don't. Because there is no promise that it's going to work. There is no promise that all these emotions you release from therapy, talk sessions, or whatever, that pain, there's no promise that you're going to get an equivalent amount of joy. So you know look, yeah, and, and, and you, you have to – so anyway – he didn't buy in. Most people don't. He was already there. And so then he's, he's already closed-minded. He's already stubborn. And this is where I go unlucky. At 48, Tom Budge saw a film. He was planning on getting out of rehab in 30 days, and he saw this film. And I went, that's me. And I signed up for another 30 days. I did not plan on going for 60 days. And in those 30 days, learning about codependency and shame and anxiety disorders and all this kind of stuff, I went, wow, I've got all that. And perfectionism, and they're showing why perfectionism is wrong. And I have all these other beliefs like, you know, um, the early bird gets the worm. Trust me, that doesn't work real well if that's all you do all the time. And and I had secrets. I I knew how to be quiet. Not anybody hurt me. And, And secrets kill I don't have secrets now. That's why you want to say, oh, Tom Bud suffered from cocaine. Go ahead. 
You know, I've raged at least three times during COVID. I've scared my fiance with my yelling once. I'm not proud of it. And that's from my childhood. That's my old way. And it's, and I've got back, but it, it can't hurt me if it's a secret. Tom, was it your dad yelling at you like that back in the day or your family? Was it that upbringing where you got that from the yelling and the anger? Let's just put it this way. If I was in a really tough meeting and there was guys like Peter Pockington and some other crazies right. and they started ranting and raving and vocally abusing their staff like I seen them doing screaming or yelling, I'd be just sitting there scratching my head waiting because it didn't phase me a bit because that was familiar. And that's why I can handle stress so well and pressure so well. And if guns started going off normally until my kids died, I'd be the calm one get because I'm used to the loud noises and the chaos. But act the same way and to only use that tool. It doesn't mean that, you know, if you saw somebody out beating, you know, somebody that you know or taking a hammer to your car, you're probably going to go into a rage. So we got to be really careful. So, you know, maybe I raged about something drink whole bed that I should have and under the circumstances enough to make you mad. My word of raging is I'm yelling. Okay. I mean, I want to, I want to be firm, tense and, and let my anger out. But if I actually am yelling, I call that raging now. Yeah. Okay, so we got to be yeah. careful with it. So to me, I'm not, that tells me I'm now unregulated. That tells me I'm triggered. That tells me I'm out of balance. That tells me I'm not capable of being empathetic, compassionate, or understanding. Nor is anybody going to listen to what I have to say because they don't feel safe. But yeah, I grew up in an environment that had yelling, noise, screaming, name calling, yeah, all that kind of stuff. You had a high threat. Yeah. And so one, you got to recognize that when we talk about children suffering from abuse, so far, let me go back. Why is all this important? If we talk about we want to have people um, have positive mental health, that's so they can have joy and peace and, you know, fulfillment, enjoy the the good and the bad, right? So that's, that's, so you try to get there. What are the other reasons we, we want to promote positive mental health? If you don't promote positive mental health, you can get depressed. If you get depressed, and if you look at now go but far in suicide, what are the main causes of suicide? The 60% biggest cause of suicide is people that were in depression. So it doesn't mean that if you're depressed, you're going to be suicidal. But when you look at who committed suicide, 60% of them were depressed. So if you could avoid depression, you've cut your suicides way back. So people look at me, and I start off early on, what's suicide prevention? How do you get them in off the ledge? How do you recognize the signs? How do you let them know they're good enough? You know, suicide prevention starts with the speeches I give at university on how to stay emotionally healthy. I didn't work on my emotional health at all until I was 48, zero. I didn't work on my spiritual side till I was 48. So zero spiritual, zero emotional. What chance did I have of being happy anyway, Zach? Zero. Okay. Zero. So anyway, if you focus, if you focus on positive mental health, you know how to how to how to how to keep yourself there, how to do the things to avoid depression. That, that's a big part of it. And then you get in, some people are prone to depression. Why are they prone to depression? Because they were mentally abused or emotionally abused. It's different. You have to go like, what is emotional abuse? And it's surprising how many parents don't know what emotional abuse is. And we all can do it a little bit sometime, which is normal. 
just like we can be selfish, just like we can tell a lie. They're not our character. They're just a little bit bad behavior every now and then. But when you start to do something a lot like sarcastic all the time with your kids, criticizing everything they do, making them doubt what they're thinking, making fun of their stupid, oh, yeah, I might be a garbage man one day. What are you, an idiot? You're not going to be a garbage man. You're going to be like whatever it is. Whatever. When we, are, we take a whole, whoever we take away their ability to be a child, always being condescending, you know, not looking at them when they're talking to us, telling them to keep, keep quiet every time they want to share something. Whatever that buildup is, that's a form of emotional abuse to a five- and six-year-old. So does that make you a bad parent? No. It means you're unaware. So if you can be aware of the things that actually could hurt a kid, then you try to do less of them. And that, for me, I need to look, look at that for myself. If I want to have good self-esteem, I need that at the end of every day know that I did my best to be a good human, including respectful on the show, including be good to my fiance, helping people out. So if I don't know what causes emotional abuse unintentionally, how do I make sure I'm not doing it? So I've read a lot about that. It, it's made me change my speech pattern, my tone, maybe the use of certain words. It makes me aware that I have the ability to unintentionally hurt people. And I need at the end of every day, check and see if I did. And if I did, here's a big one. I've had to learn and I need to do this talk action. I need to go say sorry. I say sorry a lot. Now, compared to usually, you, you, you couldn't get those words that it hurt too much to admit, I'm sorry. You know, I'm sorry. I, I know when I've teased my, my fiance about something that I know I shouldn't have, but that's a little Denison menace in me. You know, get things going, right? But, you know, I can go correct that because at the end of the day, if my mental health normally depends on what I eat, how much sleep I do, all my exercise, if, but my mental health depends on my self esteem. I actually need to be able to go, I'm a decent guy and I've tried hard. And, you know, when I've messed up, I've admitted it. Little things like that are what make me lighter. Mm. I didn't do any of this when I worked, which is another reason I was so successful, Zach. My focus was on work. My focus was on the oil and gas. Business. My focus was on reading every industry journal. My focus was on attending every seminar. My focus was on every vacation I had a client with me. If there was a dinner party, it was nothing but clients and my parents. Everything I did had clients. I even got married. People that attended my wedding were clients of mine. That's how efficient I was. They did a show on me called The Nature of Risk. And in that show, I'm on two cell phones. This is when cell phones first came up, those flip type, yep. no time for cameras. Oh, yeah. I'm on two different conversations at the same time on a regular basis. I also learned in the, in the office, don't let in certain clients take messages, only let these calls on this main phone take messages. And then there's a box. I grabbed the messages because leaving the office and walking to the next meeting, why I got my junior guys with me once carrying the I'm doing two phone calls at the same time, Zach. That's insane. But boy, did I ever feel powerful and good and I could multitask. Two phones at the same time. I had my own gym in my office, a kitchen. Do you I miss suspicious. a little bit of it, though? Those moments of power? You can hear it in my voice sometimes. Like, it was a rush. It was a drug. But I didn't miss it when I retired for my kids. People are like, oh, that's bullshit. I didn't. When my one son moved back with me, Dylan, people never saw me happier. Driving him to school, yeah. 
picking him up at school. He ran because he was just he was just full of energy himself. That was pretty cool. And people said I couldn't retire, Zach. People said I couldn't play golf ever. I won't play golf. And I just, I, I don't take it seriously because it's not what was important. And I miss shots and I'm okay. And I'm not swearing. I'm not cheating. I'm not dropping balls down my leg. I play a decent game, but people thought I'd unravel on the golf course. And I watch guys unravel on the golf course. Not me. It's not your and thing. Retirement, but retirement, people said you'll never be able to retire. I never... Missed work in the sense of I hate it, retirement board, because the minute I got out of work, I, I took on that because I was in recovery. I took in that job of helping, helping other addicted people out. I found a niche talking to parents about the risk of their kids being addicted or how these parents would talk to me about their kids recreating when I know they're doing more. Than, I, I know, like, you know, oh, my kid recreates with heroin. Really? You think so? Oh, yeah, he hasn't done anything else. He just did a little heroin. Really? Anyway talking to parents, mostly of wealthy families, on how to not enable or, or wake up to the facts, that became a bit of a niche Tom, market. who's your friend that uh, his, both his kids passed away and he had called you for, or each time, both of his kids had passed away? Uh, Keith or McPhail, I think. Ken McNeil. Yeah. Ed McNeil, yeah. Yeah, Ken, Ken McNeil. Ken McNeil, sorry, yeah. So yeah. when you had spoke to him, was, was there healing for both of you? A yin and yang in a way? Well, they, 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 they say that's the case, so, but I can't speak for anybody else, right? But they say that's the case. I can say that if Ken McNeil hadn't been there and others like Ken McNeil, because there were some others too, right. and I'm assuming Ken doesn't mind me saying his name. I don't really spout off stuff, but I'm assuming he doesn't because he was out there and he tries to help the same way as I do. People can call me. If people know someone that's lost a child for any reason and they need someone to call, give them my number. Well, me talking to Ken some days was what got me through to the next day. Mm. And I'm assuming it did help him a little. He didn't call me a lot, but he was always there for my call. And uh, I think when he lost his second one, though, he, he might have called. I know when I called him, he really appreciated when I, you know, when I would call him on the second one. And I know it's like, um, you, do you like think it might be a little like I don't I don't know if I should put that on. Is it too sensitive if it's someone else's story? Is it bad to put that up, or is it, you think he'll be okay? Yeah. Who knows? I don't know. I could I, I could check with him. Yeah. If it's yeah. something you think is good, it was really I good. I mean, even, mm -hmm. yeah. Well, I'm gonna check with him. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Send me a text afterwards to check on Perfect. that. Hey, how many yeah. weirdos do you get messaging you after you give your number out and they keep calling you so much or texting you? Yeah. Well, there is some. Yeah. And, um, you know, and I have some friends that have a different personality. They, they think I'm way too out there. I'm way too exposed. I share way too much. And sometimes I put with a raw feeling like I put a post out the other night about the weekend and the Super Bowl. Oh, yeah. It was a pretty raw post. And, uh, you know, and I, I questioned myself and I even asked me, should I put this one out? Because I'm not actually doing it for me. I'm already through it. But I, I have the words and the feelings. I know this isn't what people are used to seeing and this might help. Right. But I get tons of people are all worried about about ready to take my life. Right. Always. But in any event, on my website, I'd say 80 percent of the people that call me aren't weirdos. But, you know, 25 percent of that 80 are looking for my money only or looking for the easy way to fix. Um, I, you know, I've had one weirdo who basically was going to blame me for the, all the problems on the earth. 
man. You know, if I really was so charitable and so this and that, I'd be helping him in his way to solve global warming and global shortage of food. You know, and he started, you know, doing some pretty weird stuff and stalking me in public. And uh, he did it to another, he was also doing it to another fairly well-known competitor of mine in Calgary. And uh, so I had to, you know, I, I took some measures to, you know, to make sure I wasn't at risk. But that's, that's the only bad one. I can usually tell when I'm going to go, somebody's just too far out there and their, their problem is too serious and they haven't done anything for themselves yet, which is an important ingredient for me. If you aren't trying to help yourself, don't ask me to give up my time for you. Okay. So I can weed those out usually. Something that, again, part of, part of my, my recovery, my growth, is I want to be respectful as much as I can and treat people the way that I want to be treated. And I'm going to give people the benefit of the doubt. So if, they, if somebody sends me an email, I actually typically send something back within the day. The odd time I take a couple of days because I know it's a dicey one, but I send something back. And, and, and I, I, I'm pretty good at knowing when I'm going to meet somebody for coffee and help them or whether I'm going to end this after a couple of texts. Um, what do you think about the Canadian Mental Health Association? I mean, the great thing is it's there, but if you're going to take your own life, the last thing I'm going to do is call the 1-800 number or the prevention yeah. line. Is there a way around this or is there some sort of a solution or ways people are thinking of this? So there's various organizations that have a goal and, and, and good intentions to, to end the stigma of mental health as a goal. Um, and others, you know, try to provide good mental health services. So you have a positive mental health mm-hmm. and then you have, you know, some that are there for suicide prevention, you know, like what I call like a, a segment. So for me and my experience, I can tell who's legitimately trying and who has good efforts and it's hard to measure how effective any of them are, including the suicide hotline. Mm -hmm. Um, I I know myself, I shifted on how I'm spending my time where I can have an impact, know that I've improved people's health, which improves or lowers suicide. So I'm not at the point of knowing which organization is the best, which of the programs are the best, which ones ought to cost because people don't think in those terms. They think about, they think, and how much money can we raise? How do we use our, how do we use that money for services? How do we promote our services to also raise money and provide services? There's like a, a circular thing going on. And sometimes it's hard to tell, are they in the fundraising business or are they in the mental health service business, right? But the awareness itself is. The awareness itself is out there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and then. I haven't done it yet. It's a question I'd like to try to answer or, or analyze. Um, I do it with charities in general, like of the money coming in, how much it really goes to where it's needed. Of the money coming in, how much it goes where they said it was going to go. Of the money coming in, how much is actually a benefit versus they spent it. So do we really improve mental health and what's the measure? Do we really get depression rate down? Have we really made teenagers feel more safe, more connected? I don't know, what, I, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know what the measure is but it's going to be a phase I go into It's one of my thoughts. And part of that is, is that we delayed the major launch of the Peyton and Dylan Bud Memorial Fund last year. It's created, there's money in it. I use it. And for every dollar invest or, or that's donated to the Peyton Dylan 
bud memorial fund i then match it so it could grow and that fund is just going to be for mental health other like other charities besides mental health and then there i'm going to start to try to see of these various mental health organizations or projects or little individual people pause with a charity focus who seem to be doing the most per dollar of effort and dollar of money. And I'm going to, to try to build up a, a war chest for mental health. I wasn't expecting COVID to happen. So now I'm doing with three times a number of problems, which makes me go, what do I matter? You know, what, what can Tom Bud really do? But that's a defeatist attitude. And uh, I can't let that happen. I'll explain that later. But anyway, I'm still going to do this. Uh, and COVID's there and it's made mental health issues grow be more challenging, but I'm going to actually try to find places for money that others haven't thought of, or I'm at least going to know of these major public names, you know, we know who they are. I'm going to try to figure out which one of that group is the best, and I'm going to try to get the money given to me first, and then Tom Bud's going to go in and negotiate where that money's spent with them, versus everybody sending it in to XYZ government organization. That's what I'm going to try to do. That's exactly. No one knows exactly what's happening, where the funds go. We don't no. see much of it. Yeah. No, no, no. You know, for instance, I, you know, counseling is definitely needed. Okay, and counseling isn't. You know, when somebody starts talking suicide, you got to get in and get help. There's just no. There's no other answer. I don't know if that's the only answer. If that answer, you've got to do something. You've got to intervene. You also need to get some counseling for the parents. But the parents don't know anything about enabling and codependency and, and that they're actually shaming their kids or if they don't understand what's the addiction, why don't you just quit? Stop drinking. You know, it's not like that. You know, they don't understand why their kids are fighting all the time at school, right? Well, you got to get counseling for the kids. You got to get counseling for the parents. And, and if you can do that, you can maybe intervene until the child or teenager can start to do something for himself. But long before that, there's families that know there's something different with their children and they need access to resources. And, and it might be as simple as finding the counselors that are really dedicated to that type of work, really love what they do and have a passion. You know, maybe I need to raise money in the Peyton Dillon Bud Memorial Fund and I give each one of these counselors ten dollars to $20,000 each. And see I what want to number of kids and then they're going to donate and then I'm going to monitor them. You know, how many kids are you seeing? You know, that might mean, might mean me adding a few more staff um, to the Thomas Allen Budd Foundation, which I don't pay. I don't write off. I pay them separately. And my, the money that's given to me goes 100% to the charities. I don't write off my costs like some people do. Mm -hmm. might change that. But in any event, well, the one thing about the website and these people that email me, the people that I help, I have hundreds and hundreds of people from Instagram to Facebook say, well, Tom, don't give up. You know, you're, you're, you're needed. Tom, you're, you're, you're showing us how to do this. You know, Tom, you're, you're leading by example. Tom, you've helped so many people, blah, 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 blah. I don't know whether it's true. Some days I go, wow, that feels good. Other days I go, no, I'm a shithead. It doesn't. I'm wasting my time. If I go, let's, let's, let's assume it's true. I got a list of at least 200 people from my website that I've helped. They've told me I've helped them. If I could get 10 or 15 of those people to volunteer to the Thomas Allen Bud Foundation, give it back. Same way as I do. I don't need to spend two hours a day talking to people about their problems, but I do, and I enjoy it, and I feel better about myself. If I can get 10 or 15 of that 200 to volunteer, they can become the people that actually do the work that I need to do to go out and do the checkups on where the money is spent. He's a voice the eyes for you. Exactly. Exactly. That's awesome. Anyway, we're in the, we're in the process. The anniversary of both my kids' deaths is April for both of them. 
and I'm looking at actually, believe it or not, I know it's probably some people say you're taking advantage. I'm looking at launching this thing publicly. I was going to do it last year and I didn't. But I'm looking at it again for this for this April. Where we're going to launch, do some sort of fundraising, get some more um, more uh, marketing on it, and then as soon as the COVID rules are up, I'm going to do the big first annual. Uh, Thomas Allen Bud Foundation. I've been renamed the foundation. It's going to be called the Bud Foundation, the Bud Family Foundation. I'm going to encompass my sister and her husband, Cheryl and Wayne, and my fiance. And it. so it's going to be the re rebrand, have an annual gala, and all the money goes into the Peyton Dillon Bud Fund. And, and, and it's going to be where I'm now asking all those that I've given money to, now lots of time to, they've always said they'll be there. If I ever want to raise money, they're there. I'm probably now going to go, you know what, guys, I'm going to do what I said I'd never do. I'm going to ask you for money, except I'm not going to be like anybody else and spend your money and look good. Whatever you guys all give me, whether it's 10 grand, 100 grand, a half a million, I'll match it every year. I'll match it. Nobody gives me anything that I won't then match out of my own personal money. And that's what I'm thinking of doing. And, uh, but I got to get the COVID rules lifted. Fuck, this thing is bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is yeah. it bad I out agree. there for you? Or is it okay? Well, the mask. I'm looking, I'm looking at the sunshine here in the ocean. And the, the dolphins were out there earlier today. It ain't that bad for me. But, you know, when I think, when I start letting my mind, I got to go with my mental condition. When I start letting myself know I can't come back to Canada, they're going to make me go to a motel for three days when I'm willing to pay all the tests in the world to say I don't have it. And, and I know they're just trying to keep everybody home so the money stays home get my anger going so no matter how beautiful it is my mind because it, it wants to that, that, that brother that little monkey it wants to get up there and make me mad it wants me to have a resentment because now i might use an inappropriate coping skill and i don't like myself for sure so we get the cycle going so you know as nice as that is covid still affects me and i still got to keep myself yeah. the ground yeah. i gotta look for the positive not the negative i gotta stop Arguing with every stupid thing I hear from somebody that I don't respect, you know, it's a, it's a bad. Do you cut the noise out now? Yeah. A lot of the bullshit. Yeah. yeah. Or try. I, I, I can, and right now I'm there. But the, the honest answer is, we'll just say three or four weeks ago, I wasn't, and that's what allowed me to get here. So it's, it's becoming aware of what really hurts you. It's becoming aware of what bothers you or irritates you. So I know I need my sleep. I know I need to eat properly. I've learned that I need to actually make sure I hydrate properly so I'm not really fatigued because really fatigued, I get irritable, right? If I notice that I've been irritable for a couple of days and I'm not hugging and whatever with fiance, all these things are signals that I might be starting to get a little unhinged. When I'm starting to bitch and complain at everything I'm seeing or reading, that's another sign. Not that, but when that's happening. But eventually when I see enough of that, I get overwhelmed. I say something I shouldn't say. I have a behavior that I'm definitely sorry for. And that's when I'm smart enough to go, I'm now at the level. I'm now overwhelmed. I've now hit my peak. And now I need to do the stuff that gets me back to where I'm in the now. I'm pretty zen. I'm chill. So it's a moving thing. So one of the big ones for me, Zach, was recognizing that 
this new thing, conspiracy theory, and hearing about them when it's kind of interesting. And at first, it was kind of neat reading about Proud Boys and reading about QAnon, reading about fucking aliens from giant from. It's just something's crazy. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, you know, I started reading that, and then some of my friends are reading it more, but they're actually believing it. And and then because you're in a bad mood, you're starting to go down that. And I found that between reading about conspiracy theories. And then getting a little more fearful, because what if they're right and I'm naive and I've been blind and I've been stupid and I'm too forgiving, right? Mm-hmm. So you get a little negative, a little more worried. And then you add in the news, which I watched for a half hour. And it's not news. It's a reality show. It's an opinion show to give you their opinion, but make it think it's yours. That's my view of the news, right? When I have too much of that, I get into a negative reactionary non-compassionate person for anybody else that might be different. But I've at least learned what it is. And the newest one was conspiracy theory. So I've stopped reading anything about them. I, I needed to program myself to go, yeah, there's a grain of truth in everything. But, but when I go 5G, the reset, I put it all together. I go, you know what? Kind of like God. He can choose to think there's one or choose not to think there's none. Nobody knows, but they all talk like they do. When I really look at conspiracy theories, it's not the 50-50. So, by the way, I'm going to choose there is a God, and I'm going to search for meaning, and if I don't find it, I don't. But I'm going to go that way. The conspiracy theories, I'm going, no, I, I have to believe that the governments all aren't all conspiring together. It's not this big plan. We're not going to um, – let's go. There's a lot Spirit of people of Alex saying, Jones? Spirit of Alex Jones? Don't, don't want to offend any of your viewers. He's an idiot. He's crazy, and he's going to hurt people. Yeah. That's my view. Okay, he's, and, too, he's far, eh? On the extreme, he's too far. It's, it's, and that's the conspiracy theory doesn't mean you're right wing. You're far, far right wing, and just like on the left side, they're out too far. Mm-hmm. The middle and a little edgy is okay. I've never been right in the middle. No. I'm open to, but when when I get things that are just so far out, and I and there is no basis, and the more I read about whatever the conspiracy theory is, and I get people that are in it. It doesn't take me more than a half hour to poke holes in it, and, and they just use the same name calling and stuff. Well, and they, they try just to push it in our faces, right? They push it in yeah. our faces. Yeah. 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 So the bottom line is, like, I've had to go. You know what? I don't think Trudeau is linked with Biden, and Biden's not linked with China, and they're also sitting to reset. And then all of a sudden, we're going to go from a semi-capitalist socialist uh, economy to a market. It ain't going to happen. That's my belief. But does that mean that they're all making smart decisions? No. Does that mean that they don't have their own agendas? Does that mean that they aren't? There isn't some bit of, uh, you know, you know, fraudulent. Like, there is. Just like there's some bad cops, but they aren't all bad. True. So I'm going with that belief. And the minute I've done that, I go. I don't want to watch conspiracy theories. I'm a happier guy in the last two months. The minute I've turned the news off since Trump did his thing, mm-hmm. you know, I'll, I'll get into the politics. Once Trump did what. He says he didn't do that. They're now impeaching him for once that happened. I watched, I said, I'm done with watching the news. Speaking of, they can actually, I don't think they'll be able to impeach him now. He's a citizen. I don't know. Well, that's a whole different yeah, well, Here's where I'm really good now. I'm just going to show you. So it's a great question. And, and, and your conclusion is logically based. But I actually don't have to spend any time on that because it's going to evolve. And eventually there's going to be a decision I'm going to get to read. He was impeached. Or he wasn't impeached. I have to spend no time on it. So I'm now trained on all these kind of topics that can get you engaged, get you in. 
where once you make your opinion and now gotta follow it, they avoid a lot of that. Now I go, you know what, I don't even have to care because it actually doesn't matter. It doesn't affect I'm already you. It doesn't affect me, and he's passe. He's not there. I'm better off watching what Biden's doing vis-a-vis the pipelines or what Biden's doing vis-a-vis mm-hmm. the second vaccine if I'm going to watch something. So I, I try not to get involved in these things where everybody, oh, it's not constitutional. And this is what we're talking top lawyers. It's not constitutional. And so I was oh, it, it is constitutional. When I get two really top U.S. lawyers both saying the opposite things, I know you and I can read all we want. Yeah. We're never going to have anything other than an opinion. That's all it is. <laughs> That's true. Right? People we, get what, pissed what? off about opinions that don't matter. Yeah. Nothing matters. Yeah. And if, if, you, if you've been in the court system, I say this to people that are going to court, and, and you're, you're, you're in the court system so long, and I give people advice on that too, is that you have to get used to staying in the now. And you need to get really good at knowing you've done your best and you can't control the outcome. Because the court system is just like the impeachment thing. Being right doesn't mean you get the judgment in your favor. And being wrong doesn't mean you lose. You're going to take all this information and all this experience. You're going to send it all in for months into the court system. And you actually think the judge is going to read it for the two weeks before the thing. He doesn't. The reality is they read it about one hour. The slam is back and they screwed it. And then they get to listen to two lawyers, synthesize it, twist it. And then they make a judgment with their biases involved. And I've been in court lots. And I I usually win when I should win. That's the answer. I usually win when I should win. But I've lost when I should have won, a major one. I won one I should have lost. And I knew it. I, I was telling my lawyer to give it up. And he didn't. And we won. So I've told it. That's why it's called a judge, a judgment. That judge has his own biases and, and criticism from past cases and owing people fate, whatever it is. When you go into court, you're flipping a coin. And that's why most people settle before the judgment. So that's how I actually run life. But well, when you ask me that question, on, on the, there's so many, well, do you think they can really do it? Do you really think that's right? Really, but my opinion doesn't matter. Somebody else will make that decision and I will read about it. I'll use it as a reference for me to make judgments when I need to. But otherwise, otherwise okay. I, I let that go. I'm, I'm way better at letting all that shit go. I don't Tom, get involved. Tom, how did you feel after our t- chat yesterday? Were you okay? Were you like, what the fuck did we just do? <laughs> we had a good chat, though, I thought. Yeah. So it's going to be hard to edit this out if we're trying to make it look like one. So you'll have to strategically. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, so, I will. Yeah, yeah. So on, um, on our earlier chat before we took our break, um. I was, I was excited, but I knew I was drained. Yeah. And, I re- and I remembered the feeling because I did once two speeches a day for two days in a row at UBC. And I collapsed after the second day. And a minister told me that I had to watch that as part of the, this industry, right? What you're doing. Same as you listening, talking. So when I walked out, I felt tired and I knew that. I really felt blessed that we got to connect. And I thought, you know, who knows where this is going to go? And that's the cool part. It used to be, who knows where this is going to go financially. Well, I'll, it's not like that anymore. So it's like pretty cool. It's pretty pure. Okay. That's it. It hasn't pounded in. So I went away with that as a feeling. And then here's the interesting one. I started to remember stuff I said. I started wondering whether I said it right. And then I knew I didn't have time to clarify. And then I forgot to put in that, which would have made it more sense. 
And then I remember the stuff about my dad. And before long, I was in a major shame cycle. I did not feel good about myself. I felt like I'd done something wrong. I felt dirty, Zach. And that's when I knew I got to be really careful because I didn't mean to put myself here. I got to really watch myself. So, you know, we talked about gnats and stuff. Oh, yeah. And my girlfriend, and my, my fiance, I say fiance because if I say girlfriend, she gets really upset like I don't intend on marrying her type of thing. <laughs> I do. I, I love her to death. She's the best thing that's happened to me. And, uh, you know, whatever. They're too corny, but yeah, it feels pretty good. But, you know, she did something that kind of hurt me a little bit. And was it, was it, um, was it because I was already drained or was it really hurtful? I didn't know, but I let her know. And I knew then I need the self-care. And I said, I'm going upstairs. And I went and fell asleep. I slept for two or three hours wow. right after this. Mm-hmm. And then I woke up and I was still a little off. And then I could tell it. But again, it's, 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 it's wondering whether I did good enough. Was it going to be any good? Does anybody really want to watch it? Mm-hmm. Are you going to look mm-hmm. at it and go, oh, it's fucking guys crazy or whatever. And, uh, and I was like that. So I got up, I got up this morning. That was good. And, you know, I was like, you know what? We can clean it up. I should let you know I'm available. And that's as much as I can do. That's all that's in my control. Mm-hmm. And it is what it is. And, you know, and I've, had, I've had a great day. That's how but I, I, felt do, I felt to do the dip, which that's called total self-awareness. And I need to do some self-care before I let something unintentionally take me out. And Tommy, you knew you needed a rest. You went upstairs and took a nap. I knew that from, I know that from how naps have worked. And then because before, when I said I did those two at the universities, da, 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 you know, the outcome wasn't always that good after those four bang, bang. I was so drained. I got so hit and and, I, and my brain knows what to do. You get out of that really low, dark self-esteem hole, shame hole. Right. So because I know that can happen, maybe it's one out of 20. I knew right last night that with those feelings and it, were, it was pretty dramatic. And again, we talked and stuff that I haven't talked about that way on podcasts before. I gave a pretty open, I've been giving a pretty open interview here with you, right? Thank you. So it makes me question things afterwards. And that's what my mind does. It always questions, mm-hmm. you know, should I have done this? Should I have done that? I should have done less of this. I should have done more of that. And, and no, no, no. But it's my I know head. It's, right? it's my head. And you saying it today, I know it. I just, I'm just really relaxed again today. But when I'm in that mode, you know, and I could tell once I get in the shame mode, I, I, she, I could tell she... She knew she unintentionally hurt me a little bit. She was trying to do some repair stuff. I was having nothing to do with it. She was trying to like show me love. I was not to be a prick about doing it. I, that's what happens to me when I'm shamed. I, and I, I can't feel and I don't feel whatever good. And um, so it's, it's almost impossible for me to give anything because I'm drained. But I also know it's impossible for somebody else to actually do things. So the safest thing for me to do is just go to bed and sleep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's like I tell people that are thinking bad thoughts. I go, just get through tonight. Just, just trust me. Go to bed. Get some sleep. I'm not telling you your problem's going away. Your feelings won't feel the same. So they're either going to be worse, call me right away, or they're not going to be quite as bad. And we need to get a string of that. But your feel, and I, and I, and I can almost guarantee, from the time I lay down or anybody lays down, and you wake up, there's going to be a slight difference in your feelings. And I knew that. So anyway, I went to bed and I've had a good day today. I, I think we're having a pretty good interview. Oh, yeah. And, and I'm also, it doesn't really matter because this is me right now. That's this is me right now. Now, the trick is, can I stay there long where I go, I'm okay with me right now? That's my challenge in life, right? Mm-hmm. But it's a steering wheel. Nobody drives with their hands together. You're always moving. 
So that's why we got to stay flexible. We're not always going to be perfect. And then we're not always going to be making mistakes. And It's a know, balance of everything uh, in our life. Right. Yeah. right. It, it, it is a balance. And, and it, it isn't doing one day of this and one day of that. And that can work because mm-hmm. then you go intellectually know your balance. Balance is an emotional, spiritual feeling. You know when you have too much of something, or you should, you can regulate to know this is turning into greed, right? Mm-hmm. It isn't, okay, I've done two days, that's enough. It's a feeling. You know when you're not being that giving and compassionate and empathetic. I know when I'm not. And when I'm shut off from the ability to be compassionate and understanding, I know I'm probably reactionary and judgmental and argumentative. And my next stage is I'm a prick. And I'm closed-minded, and I don't respect you, so I'm not listening to you. Now, I don't get like that very often. But I would be, I was a lot like that as an investment banker. It was very efficient. And as a leader that led, that style worked. Now, I wouldn't have been able to build a huge firm, but we sure could build a small, highly efficient, and the most profitable per-person firm in the world, probably. Our rate of return per person was off the map. Our rate of return on capital was like 200% at least every year. Tom, do you think you could have still had that drive? You know, you needed that pressure to do what you did. And what if you were Tom Bud today? Could you start an investment bank and be as successful or remotely successful? 100% sure. And I'm going to go, most people will argue against that and doubt it because it actually that it actually goes against their own belief system. Mm. So the good that I had was good, but I was missing some things and nobody told me that I was missing them. I'd never had a mentor that said, Hey Tom, based on your family, you got all this good, but trust me, I know your parents. Here's some things to start thinking about. Here's, I didn't have that. So what I did is I kept doing more and more of the good without realizing I had these big holes. So at the end of the day, what made me really good was these things. So you naturally assume if I didn't have those or have them to that level, I'd fail. But I'm going to go, the difference, what it's like right now, I advise people, uh, young, I say young, like 30, 40, 45-year-olds, right? So when they come to me and they've already talked to other people in their business and their other friends and they've gone to, to, to consultants and they meet me and I talk to them, it's like mental health. I'm not a psychologist. People come to me and they say I'm better than their psychologist. They spend an hour with me and they feel good, okay? So if I was going to start up a mental health clinic, if I was going to help somebody, there's a guy in a marijuana company. I know he wants me on his board. I could help him be more successful and I could be just as successful if it was investment banking. If I started right now and I had the energy and youth, I could have been as successful, but my definition of success would have been slightly different. So I still would have made a fortune. I wouldn't have made as much. I wouldn't have worked as long hours, but I still would have been considered a really hardworking guy. I wouldn't have needed to constantly win and have the feeling of hating the guy that stole my deal. I wouldn't have needed to walk in the Earl and have everybody. I wouldn't have needed that. Okay. Even Avenue. I would have liked that. I, I had a really good career and I've got some really good friends and I knew the difference between business friends and my friends. 
I wouldn't have needed to do those last 10 deals because, you know, I just spent a great month in Asia at some ashram and, 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 and did something different. You know, I, so I actually believe I would have been as successful. I wouldn't have had as many secretaries quit. I wouldn't have had as many young people that didn't have the talent emotionally beat up. I wouldn't have had as many competitors, you know, dislike me because I made sure I embarrassed them right at the right minute to get the deal, you know? And again, that's all kind of acceptable. It's kind of like hooking in a hockey game or you drop your gloves. You know, I don't want to, I don't, I don't fight like I used to. I don't argue like I used to. I don't have to tell people when they're wrong, they're wrong and make sure that because they've hurt me, I've hurt them. I don't have to do any of that. So I don't need to get as many, I wouldn't need to get as many deals to feel good about myself because I'd already be feeling good about myself. I, I'd have a longer career because I'm not burnt out. You know, I couldn't have gone any further. I should have quit earlier, but it's lucky I got as far as I did. It wasn't healthy, emotionally healthy. And that's, that's where I go. The emotionally healthy guy He's not going to get distracted with divorce as much. He's not going to have the same um, think chaotic things go wrong in his life. He's not going to abuse alcohol, gambling, or other stuff, which is a distraction eventually from work, right? So then you got to work even harder because you've been distracted. You know, every time you make a big mistake, you got to go clean up your mess. I don't clean up many messes anymore. So I have all that free time to do nice stuff. And nice stuff gets you business too. I would have had a slightly different marketing approach. I might not have had the nickname Ranbud, but I probably still would have had a pretty cool nickname. And I would have been considered one of the top investment bankers in Canada. And I probably would have laughed at the guy that needed to pass me. Well, one of, one of the guys that tried to pass me the fastest and wanted to have everything I had, and he actually asked me to be his partner at one point, was George Gosby. Oh, yes. And George... You, you knew know, him? Suffered health issues, and he committed a suicide. Yep. Did you know him well? I knew him reasonably well, but because I didn't understand my own challenges then, I wouldn't have realized I was dysfunctional in some areas and, and compensated with other things that, you know, yeah. I was outgrowing. Because I didn't know that about myself, I wouldn't have seen it quite in him. But I knew that whatever I might not like in myself, I saw it more in him. And some of the things that I saw myself that I really liked, I didn't see in him. And then as I retired and watched him and heard, I understood why he was doing things the way he was because I was starting to work on my dysfunctions. So when he finally crashed, it wasn't a big surprise to me. And um, What you know, was but, he like? Like what was the same characteristics you saw in each other in the downhill or the downfall? Well, would he overwork himself as well? George had to be bigger. And once you talk like that, see, I was always more comfortable as an underdog. I liked number three, number four. I didn't like what I was all of a sudden number one. Because, you know, there's only one way to go, and I didn't like that way. And I wasn't quitting. You know? And Gosby was a guy that always said he was going to do it, where I always underplayed. But once I did it, I shoved it in your face, okay? But Gosby <laughs> was the game, eh? No cat and mouse. So, so – Gosby bowled way more money. Gosby made way more promises. Gosby said he was going to do things that were pretty tough to deliver on. And eventually, the only way you can deliver on them is bending the rules and doing some other stuff. Of course. 
And, you know, you don't think you're going to get caught, but you know you're going to get caught. Holy shit, that's not a good feeling, I bet. See, my fear of the law, my fear of getting in trouble, my fear of getting caught doesn't make me a better person. Those fears trump other things that I have, and those things keep me in check where other guys will break the law. Other guys will borrow money from certain bank accounts. Certain guys will step out on their way because whatever it is because they don't have the same fear. It isn't that my ethics or morals are necessarily better. Maybe they are, but I'm just going to go from a fear standpoint. And to me, if I say I'm going to do something that I don't, I feel so bad. But guys like Weckerly, for instance, as a trader, Mike, oh, yeah. I believe that he'd say it and he could usually make it happen, but we had to control that. We had guys sitting on the desk beside him, compliance people, because if we left Mike on his own, we wouldn't be around. Mm. Well, Gosby was a lot like that. More, more, more. More, 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 but more than me. I never set out to be the biggest and best. Never did. When I took on investment banking, I had no idea they made this much money. I had no idea when I took the job. Other people, before they go to university, I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm going to be a doctor. Yeah, I'm going to be, a, I'm going to be an investment banker. They know that. They got all their dads. For, I was in a job interview. I didn't even know what it was. And here you are today. <laughs> but it's, it shows you how, you know, you got to be at the right place at the right time. You got to know how to capitalize. But I sure found out what investment banking was. and then figured out what are the traits an investment banker does. And those are the things that I started reading. Yeah. So yeah. I got to ask you one question. What made you... What made you buy a Tom Thompson? <laughs> Do you want to talk about that or nah? Yeah, no, it's a great, these are all great stories actually when I think you about it. You have the they funniest all, stories and I bet you have so many. I, 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 I do when people remind me, so I haven't even thought of it. So the answer to that story right afterwards would have been different than the answer three or four years later where now I'm one of the biggest collectors collections i have 34 to 40 um pieces of art pieces of art from the group of seven there's a group of seven or group of eight I can't remember. group of seven seven yeah, yeah. and uh, and then oh, i got a, a bunch a bunch of emily cars i have four four tom thompsons now by the way so but my answer now from a mental health perspective i know exactly why i bought that but it's complicated and it was one of those things I needed to do to distract me. It's one of those things that looks like it's fun, it's an investment, it's collect, it isn't. It's called a shopping compulsion, except because I hate spending money, I spend more time on the investigation and the chasing and the acquisitions just a little bit, where some people can go shop, run home, take it back, get their money, shop, take it home, go back, and I'm the, that's all the same thing. Like there's another way of me to keep my mind occupied. So I always found new projects and new collections. So I collected cars. I collected art. I had the biggest wine collection in Western Canada. So the Tom Thompson one, you know, how it was, and, but you got to remember, it's all tied to the mental health dysfunctions that I had. But I was in Vancouver and, and, um, Paper came under the door and I was in recovery and I'm in the spirituality and stuff. And this, for whatever reason, I opened it to a page and there was a big ad for a Tom Thompson. And the way the ad was presented and whatever, it stuck out at me. And uh, it was something different. And I'm trying to be open-minded. I said, oh, this is amazing. Let me back over. So I got to relax. I don't have to be running. I don't have to get my exercise in. We'll have a coffee. I'm going to read about this. 
I did. I went downstairs. So I read about the thing and then, then I Googled, you know, this group of seven that I Googled the artist and, and then and I'm, I'm finding myself intrigued with this, which is like, man, I get this tingly feeling like an out of body, body ketamine experience. Okay. So it's like, I can do that without the drugs. Okay. Cause I get this. So I'm in a disassociated state. I'm reading and I'm tingling. It's cool. And I'm reading about this Tom Thompson. He loved the Okanagan, the, the Algonquin. And, and he, On the canoeing. And he loved canoeing and he loved fishing. And he, he's up in this part of the country where I used to go with my best friend. And he hitchhiked into all these places. And, and then it had like intrigue because he disappeared because it sounded like he had an affair with somebody that had a cabin on that lake. And all of a sudden she was murdered and he disappeared and whatever. And I know, but I, I got like really into this guy's name and story. And uh, anyway, that was that for that day or that weekend. And um, the next thing I do, I'm in uh, Calgary for car racing. And all of a sudden, all over the radio and a big front page of the newspaper, big uh, art show, Tom Thompson for sale. It's like it's a, this thing. It's now that day. And I'm, I didn't know it when I went to Calgary. And this is tied back to two months earlier reading the pre-marketing advertisement in Vancouver. Like, oh, that's kind of interesting, but tough luck. I'm here racing cars. So off to Race City, I went, and I'm racing around. And, da, 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 and all of a sudden, either it rained or I blew an engine. It's one of the two, but it's 2 o'clock. And, uh, you know, uh, I go, oh, that, that art march is probably on. I, I got lots of time left in the day. I just stay busy. I should find out. So I get on the fire. There's Tom, da, 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 and, you know, is that, oh, it's the last piece. Well, What's it going? Oh, you'll hold it until I get there? I didn't really realize that I had that kind of whatever clout, but they knew who I was, and I might have called them ahead of time. You know? So I whip over, those sweaty T-shirt, jeans, cowboy boots, whatever, coming off the racetrack, and I go into this art, big art auction, not, never being in one, and it's filled with reporters and people in suits, and there's cheese plates and wine and hors d'oeuvres. And, and, and here like, you are. <laughs> there and, 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 but, you know, I bid on stocks, I bid on companies, I bid on business, and, and, I, and I know how to size up a room. So I'm in there sizing up, and I'm, really, I'm watching who the camera's trying to be close. I'm watching who the newspaper people are trying to be close. And, and you can see there's a bit of a lull, and they're waiting up. They're all going to do the big finale, like an Oscar award. He goes up there, and he gives the big preamble. He goes, no, that's just Tom Thompson, and uh, the floor bid is 400 grand. And anybody, anybody at 600 grand, 600 grand, 500, 500. It's clearly not going the right way. But, uh, you know, who knows? So anyway, it eventually gets down to like 450, 450, and – goes, you know, if this thing doesn't sell for 400, it's not going to sell to anybody. Um, no, no, he, he tried to get 400 for it and he couldn't. And he says, if we don't get a bid for this, if we don't get a good bid for this, this thing will never sell for a long time again. He's going, okay, four, 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 anybody, well, somebody bid something, I bid 350. 351, anybody else, 400, 400, 400, come on, somebody going for it. And he stayed at 400 forever. I noticed that. He's going 400, come on, somebody 400, come on, come on, somebody going for it. 375, 375, is the 350 still there? 350's there. I've never done this, but I'm going to get a lot of press. I already know I'm going to get more by the press. Tom Bud Investment Banker, I'm back in the city of my business. And uh, he goes, well, okay, I guess it's not selling. I go, pardon? Oh, you called it out? You said it? Uh, it's a reserve bid. And, uh, 
I said, no, 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 that's not right. You have to sell to me. Nobody knows reserve bid. You obviously don't know auctions. You don't know this. Tries to shame me. Poor boy from Moncton nonsense, right? I'm not dressed like them. Don't come from them. Like just like the investment banking business, he'll never last. He's so different. All the guys that like you said, right? Anyway, I go, bullshit. I know words. You said, if somebody doesn't bid now, this is going away. I bid. You didn't put a condition on it. He goes, yeah, but you have to read. I go, that's nonsense. It's your, it's up to you. Full true and plain disclosure. I go, by the way, if we don't, you need to see that. You can't bait me to bid, hoping to use me and my money to get somebody else up. If somebody, look at that dolphins right up there right now. Cool. Oh. Anyway, um, I'm letting them have it. And the, and, the, and you can see the floors dividing. People are cheering me on. I mean, some, some of the hootie tooties aren't because I don't know my art auction rules. I know fairness rules. And mm-hmm. I know bullshit, you know. And I was like, fine, I'm done. I stormed out. And I, I knew what I was doing. I stormed out. I didn't leave the building. I stormed out and went to a back corner where there was most room. Every person in there associated with the newspapers, radio, and TVs were all over me. And they wanted to know what I thought and explain it. And they really wanted me to lay out Heffel, it was called, Heffel. And Heffel sees it going on. They know they got a problem. But I was smart enough, don't lay them out. Talk about why I'm right. Talk in a conciliatory manner that you assume is going to be fixed. I don't know that it's done. I've left. I haven't drawn a line in the sand. You know, clearly, da, da, da. next thing I know, somebody comes busting through the radio and say, Mr. Bud, Mr. Bud, would you meet over in the concierge? Mr. Heffel yeah. wants to talk to you. So we got in there, and I'm going to tell you I'm impressed. Because why we are in there and their phones are ringing off the hook, and all these professional bidders that were on mm-hmm. through Zoom back then, TV, they were already in bidding 400 and 450 because they didn't think that would happen. They didn't realize I would bid. I caught everybody off guard. Then I started fighting, and they had all hoped they'd get off the phone and call Heffel and go, hey, hey, we're gonna do, you know, do, we'll give you four, four and a quarter, no, no commission, whatever. But I got him. And he said, okay, here's how it really works, but it didn't. You've got a point. We don't need the press because I let them know, you know what, I've been good, but I don't get that painting you won't be doing another auction the same way here in Calgary. Okay. And, and, and you like, wanted that painting. You were not going to leave without that painting in a way. Yeah, it, it, yeah I, I was getting it. It doesn't matter. But I also knew that it's all part of the training. He's in a bind because he told his client that when there's a floor place, you'll get that or it won't sell. So he technically isn't allowed to sell or he breaks his contract with her to me mm-hmm. for three fifty. I also didn't let him off, although I knew I would. And I, he said, but I can call her and try. And I'm going, she's had this in her garage for X number of years. She's 87 years old. If you told her it was 250, she would have taken it. If you said there was no floor bid, we'll do her best. She'd be happy as a pig. And you know what? For $350,000. And he goes, okay. He's not arguing with me, which is what I like. No, at least on the same level. But he undertook to talk to her to see if he could get her to 350. And if he could get to 350 with all the stuff, would I agree to at least move it up to some price so they can make it look like a higher price? And I said, yes. And while that was happening, he, they had phone calls. I knew that they were getting bid. So I already know they can sell this painting for way more than I'm going to pay for it. I, I figured there's a good chance he's just going to go screw it. She won't, she won't sell it to us at that price. And we have a 450 bid. So if you match it at 450, you can have it. That's what I was expecting. The head of Heffel, and this is publicity for them, came back in. He goes, you know, we're in a kind of a tight spot. We did get her. Um, he's aware of the situation. 
he's happy at you know some some price and da da da. If we all could just say it was four hundred, you don't pay any commission. You know, and the commission would have put me through four hundred anyway. Believe it or not, the commissions are huge, just twenty percent. So I would have been four hundred and a little at three fifty. So doing it publicly at four hundred wasn't costing me any money. I was paying the twenty percent on them, and we just it say fine. it. Like, yeah, I'm good. But he he came in and he told me that. He liked the way I did it. He wanted to honor it. And his biggest problem was, is that he had bids. He could give her more money. And uh, he had to turn those bids down. I, and, and I didn't think he'd follow through with it. He, and I said, you know, that's fine. But they didn't come in in time. They don't owe you nothing. You know, and she's doing it fairly too. Anyway, he did the deal. I got the painting. The painting's worth about $1.6 million right now. <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah. It's not. I, I mean, bought, how many years and I ago? Bought, and I bought three more. After, I traveled around the country to every major art thing with a new date and a fancy car. And I walked in. Everybody knew who taught. And I knew nothing about what I was doing. I was buying Lauren Harris, Emily cars. I had no clue. Except I knew when I was in a market where everybody was bidding everything and, you know, what auctions are like. And I knew enough. Stay out of those. Drink. By one or two things, and I'd be at others. And I could just tell by the tone the way people were acting that you know people aren't into art this year. And I'd walk out with six or seven million dollars worth. Oh. I was all if I bought, I bought more than anyone. And I have a huge, huge collection though. Yeah, Tom Thompson. <laughs> they're just gonna go up there. One of those things. Yeah. It's a history, right? Canadian history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then, so and then me, now you have a flag. I've done to have some fun, and, and as I. I've taken my will and all my friends and friends' kids and whatever and all the lower price pieces of art, I've identified their piece of art. So if these things stay off the market for the longest possible time ever, that'll be what I give out for my inheritances. That's so nice. Clearly, everybody will make money at some point. <laughs> right? Um, I mean, and you have cool. a flag. You got to talk about your flag that you have. Yeah. That is an yeah. interesting thing that you have. If you still have yeah. it. Yeah. yeah, I still have it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the flag's another one of those kind of stories where, you know, I I get into these things where I get a passion or a belief, and I you know I call it like it's ever since I went on a spirituality things, I'll see things and I'll go there's a reason. So again, I saw something once on you know this Canadian flag, and for whatever reason, and get into the article, and I know when I'm don't normally do it's an off behavior, and I read about this Canadian flag, and it's in a roll, and it's never been touched, and it's never been opened, and you know, you can have flags all the time, and they're tattered, and they're torn, and they have a certain value, but this is one that's never been opened, it's still in the wrap, it's like mint original condition, and um, and I'm reading about it, and, uh, and they value it, and, and it talks about, you know, hopefully it'll stay in Canada, hopefully it'll be the Canadian Museum, and, uh, and I saw it, and I also knew there was a part of an art show so i said i'll make this i'm gonna go down and i'm going to try to buy that flag that was my goal my goal was to buy that flag and bring it back and put it the big glass portable case mm. and my kid was my son was a dylan was a history buff and he loved army stuff and he collected army gear and army helmets and gas masks so oh, yeah. see, you know he liked the idea his dad was going to run i was going to lend this flag it had the four provinces and that was it it's, i don't know it's pretty cool yeah and they were at the time I had a value when I got there. The you got to kind of check out who's who, and you get to talk to people who's bidding. The bidding started, and I was warned ahead of time. There was a bunch of U.S. museums or places that wanted to buy it, and for some reason, I wanted it to stay in Canada. 
And don't ask me why. I'm not that patriotic. Um, maybe I didn't like Trump then. I don't know. I met him when I was young, too, by the way. Funny story. But in any event, I'm at the flag, and this thing's going for way too high of a price. And, it's, and I'm told it's all U.S. bidders. I kind of was there, and I said, fuck, I can't let it happen. So I just kept matching the bid. Whatever they bid, I bid. And I eventually bought it for way more than it was worth. But it's in Canada. And you know what? In that moment, in that time, and for years, it gave me pleasure. And it hangs in the main foyer of my house. And my one son always, you know, would be one of those things he talked like, Johnson's out of school. I got to bring to school. And now it becomes one of those negative things that makes me think of my son. It makes me sad. It's probably going to be one of the things that I eventually sell. It doesn't give me the same pleasures, you know. It was a, it's a fun story when I think about it. It was kind of another one of those pump mm-hmm. No. Uh, yeah. No. Anyway. You know, I love talking to you, by the way. Hey, yeah. I met this yes. guy. I don't know if you might know him from back in the day in Calgary. Uh, Jim Kinnear? I know Jim Kinnear real well. <laughs> <laughs> so, have you ever brought my name up to Jim Kinnear? Never. He'd have some funny stories. Yeah. I only and, met him one time. That Just that one yeah, time. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he'd had some funny Tom Bud stories because, you know, um, he came into the business and his background was Eastern Canada, yeah. the right family in the right place, went to the right school, and, and, and Jim was groomed the right way. So, you know, the way Jim would dress, present himself and his background, and we're going to go all that positive, I'm the anti that, Okay. And, and um, so that's how it would look. It'd be kind of like if all of a sudden I went to a golf course back when I met Jim, Jim would be with a group of guys. And Jim was a good guy, by the way. Yeah. Some, some of the other guys, they'd be looking over at me about what I have for golf shoes, shorts, my swing, clubs. Oh, gosh. Like judgmental? Yeah. I did not fit in. I did not act right. I didn't follow the protocol where Jim followed it perfectly. He did it because that's how he was brought up, not because he was trying to be, you know, whatever. But, um, Jim, when he first came out, he he really wasn't doing that well in the business, and I was. He tried to get to know me, and then all of a sudden, these trusts became popular, and he happened to own one that no one had an interest in for years and years and years, and it wasn't like Jim or others knew it's eventually going to happen. He did it. They had these things and managed them, and all of a sudden, the market had an interest in trusts, and the next thing you know, Jim Kinnear has put a bunch of these ugly looking trusts together and he's running pen growth and (laughs) he's got the name in the saddle though after him. It's it's a story of the right place at the right time. And um, uh, 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 interesting guy. (laughs) I only met him once, but I I don't play golf either. So I'm with you. Yeah. Well, Jim Jim would have his – favorite places that he'd like to go. And, you know, and Jim was a pretty good conversationalist. And yeah. If anybody wants to learn more about mental health, how do they reach out to you? And how can they help support you? Because you do so much for the community and bring awareness to this cause. Yeah. So for, for me, um, I want to I give back in two ways. I want to use um, my financial resources where I can in mental health, but I also want to be able to use my time and my knowledge experience to help others that need that need help so that's what i want to do and you know one of the ways that, that people that want to help me that don't need my help uh, you know is they can volunteer for my organization and they can find us on the, the tabf.ca thomas allen bud foundation.ca website 
and uh, there's a place there where they can contact me and, and, and volunteer and be part of some of our events, or they can donate. And I would say, you know, if people wanted to, or they see what I've done or heard what I've done, and they just believe in what I'm doing, is donate into the Peyton Dillon Bud Memorial Fund. And, um, and that's part of the same website, Thomas Allen Bud. It's right there. There's a button to press. And they could donate, and that's specifically for mental health. And I will then match it. So whatever they donate, I will match. And we do that every quarter, whatever funds come in. So they can contact me for help, have a conversation, or they can contact me to help me in, in volunteering if you live in Kelowna or uh, financially, we'll, we'll, we'll obviously accept that at any time. Perfect. Thanks so much. Okay. Thank you very much, Zach. And let's stay in touch. All right. Bye.